Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and joining me is Tanner. First, let's start with some media check-ins. Tanner, what have you been up to? We should point out first that this is our Halloween episode recording. Yes, yes, it is. Spooky. I haven't really done anything Halloween-related in media. Um, Let's see, what have I been doing? Well, tangentially, uh, Gaslight Anthem, they have a song called Halloween, um, and they just released a new album uh, this past Friday, one I've been waiting for for quite some time. Um, They announced it earlier this year. This this one had a long wait time on it. Mm -hmm. They released their first single, Positive Charge, it seems like forever ago. And been really looking forward to this, um, and it's really great. It's a it's a unique sound, you know. That this is their first album in nine years. Gaslight Anthem they tend to release albums like around times where there's some sort of like big pivotal change in my life. <laughs> the most recent one, Get Hurt, they released that like right when I was starting graduate school, and that was mm-hmm. like obviously a, a big time in my life. It is funny because I still consider that like the new album. Like, I remember that one coming out. And I think this one, I mean, their new album, uh, History Books, is it's really great. I, I've probably listened to it like six or seven times on repeat just at work the other day. Yeah, I listened to it the other day, too. I really enjoyed it. It's got Bruce Springsteen on it. That is fun. There couldn't have been like a better career achievement for Brian Fallon, probably, than yeah. doing a song with Bruce Springsteen. I feel like that's probably if you could have shown little kid Brian Fallon that he would have been very satisfied. Well, the first time I heard that song, because that was one of the singles they released like a while ago. That was, I think, the second one they released off the album. Yeah, I feel like that one has been out a while. I did not know that Bruce Springsteen was on the song when I just like sort of blindly hit play on it. Mm -hmm. And then in the second verse, I was just like, Brian? (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) The morph is continuing. Yeah, it, it is a good album, though. I feel like what I like about it is I can hear little bits and pieces of a lot of their previous albums in that album. And it, it's kind of just a kaleidoscope of Gaslight Anthem sound. Yeah, there's a lot of good throwbacks. And, you know, if you've you know listened to all of their stuff, you hear little just little snatches of verses that you're like, oh, is this a, is this a reference to, to mm-hmm. this song or this, you know, um, is this inspired by the same event? So, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a band that I think for for both of us, really, that's been longtime listeners of of Brian Fallon and the Gaslight Anthem. Yeah, I feel like you know, grow out of a lot of the bands and music you listen to in like high school and college, but I definitely feel like that's a group that has grown kind of with us. So yeah. definitely I've I've stayed engaged with them. I think on Get Hurt, there there's a there's a good deal of like heaviness and sadness on that album. And it's more um wallowing might be the right word for it, but there, there's a lot more in that album that is more of a sort of lashing out. Mm-hmm. And on this album, like there's there's a lot of that same weight to it, but it's you know it's it's kind of writing that has had you know nine years to grow and have new experiences, and it has a lot of that same sadness, but it's like a little bit more I think accepting and a little bit more resigned almost, but in like kind of a positive way, mm-hmm. sort of accepting things as this is this is what life is and this is how things happen. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just a really great album. I've I've really enjoyed it, and kind of like I mentioned last week, uh, one of your favorite bands releases a new album, and it makes you sort of revisit all of their old stuff. Yeah, and it makes you kind of appreciate the the whole process. What about you? What have you been up to? Well, adjusting to that first shift life, finally, that has been 
a transition, but I love it. Every uh, every weeknight feels like Sunday night right now, just over and over again. But the NBA is back. I've been enjoying that. Uh, I like the Bucks. I like the Mavs. But like, I'm not like a diehard fan of a team. Like, it's just so fun to see a star driven league work well. That like, you know, it's fun watching Giannis play. It's fun watching Luca play. Like, I think that's what's so fun about basketball is that like, it's just fun watching the best players do their thing and watch how creative and how athletic they can be. Uh, it's very different than like football where like the team is the thing. Yeah, the Bucks. I mean, they had they had a good uh, first game. You know, Giannis had a good game, but Damian Lillard, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, a star driven league, you know, adding him to the Bucks, it, there was already a lot of excitement about the Bucks, but that just kind of ramped it up another notch. With Lillard, now it's like, what if Giannis doesn't have to score 40 every night? Lillard went something like 17 of 17 on his free throws. Yeah, I think he had like 39 points that that game. Which again, if we're going to compare to Giannis, is, <laughs> is a nice contrast. So <laughs> yeah, they're fun. They got rid of Grayson Allen. Yeah, that's that's an upgrade. Not going to complain about that. Um, they still got a great team. They're exciting. The Badgers had a rough day yesterday. It went better than I thought it was going to go. They did make it rough on the Buckeyes uh, also. So I thought that was going to be like a 45-0 to zero type game. Ohio State knows that they can't run it up too much against Luke Fickle. Because once Ryan Day loses to Michigan like once or twice more, they're going to want Luke Fickle to come to Columbus. I know. That's why I'm not getting too invested in the Badgers right now, because I know that Fickle's not going to be there very long. Although Michigan Michigan should probably enjoy this season, because I think it's going to get rough after this. Yeah, the Badgers are kind of a tough watch. I think I thought that Luke Fickle would, would change it a little quicker. It's, it, they're transitioning. <laughs> I want to say they ran two passing plays out of the shotgun from like the two-yard line yesterday. That's not Badger football. Long gone are the days of... Monty Ball. John Clay out of the I-formation. When I was at school, you know, that was when <laughs> that was when James White was there. J.J. Watt was there for, for part of the time I was there. Those were the good days. Scott Tolzien, man. Would, would love to have Scott Tolzien at this point. And other than that, um, I got caught up on the new season of Bob's Burgers that just started. I think there's like three or four episodes. I think the fourth episode might be tonight, actually. But it's uh, it's gotten off to a solid start. It's definitely a show that's like matured with age. I feel like they're a little bit more willing to try different things and give like some of the secondary characters like their own episodes. Sometimes they're kind of hitting that stage in the life cycle of the show. So I don't know. You know, some are obviously better than others, but the first couple of this season have been really good. It's just a it's just a fun show. It's kind of a sort of a King of the Hill vibe, I guess is what I'd call it. It's very like spiritually very similar. Still never watched an episode of Bob's Burgers. It's worth it. It's definitely like if you're looking like anytime you guys are like, oh, we just need a new show to have on like in the background or something like it's a good one, like for cleaning or cooking, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to that and researching a spooky story to share with everyone today. I have some, too, but. Mine are more just, I'm going to be reading some stuff. Nice. Do any research for it. I've got a little, like, I guess I'd call it like a mini episode here. It is actually somewhere that we have been. Oh. I am going to be talking about the USS North Carolina. All right. Um, so she was commissioned on April 9th, 1941. She is built at the New York Naval Shipyard in Brooklyn, New York. She's actually the lead ship of the North Carolina class of fast battleships. 
This class is built at a time when naval construction is limited in displacement and armament by the Washington Naval Treaty. And there's some other naval treaties going on here too. Like this is post World War One when this is being constructed. So, you know, there's a million different treaties, so we don't do World War Two. Which I think just started. Yeah, it started when Matt Damon it's, said uh, it started. It's not Matt Damon. Is it not Matt Damon? Who is it's it? It's Josh Hartnett. Same person. I think we had this conversation the first time it came did. up on I the just show. Think, I think of Matt Damon. Is Fast Battleship like a technical denomination? Yes. Basically, it's not... In theory, there's like a slower, more heavily armored and equipped battleship. I think more of like a battle cruiser, but like up-armored, basically. I'm thinking of like cruiser to like, I know there's a heavy cruiser and then Mm -hmm. a fast battleship and a battleship. So is it kind of like the continuum of like a breaking pitch to like a cutter to like a two-seam fastball to like a straight four-seam fastball? So it's a really common misconception that ship classes are a static thing. They really exist on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like that. There's just like that spectrum of, of vessels. And, you know, to conform with some of these treaties and things, you do things that like, oh, technically it's only, you know, 729 feet. It's not 730 feet long. Like, you know, little things like that. So she's 729 feet long. She has a 104-foot beam, draft of 33 feet. She's a big ship. She is armed with nine 16-inch 45-caliber guns, 25-inch 38-caliber guns, 16 1.1-inch anti-aircraft guns, and 15 50-caliber machine guns. I'm not a gun guy. Like I don't, they don't, this doesn't mean a lot, but the nine 16-inch guns are like the big ones that you think of when you think of a battleship. Are there anti-aircraft gun guys? Probably. You got your Hotchkiss man. You've got whatever other manufacturers of those kind of guns. Bofors, I think, is maybe one of them. I've I don't seen know those much before. about this. I know some of the names, but like, I am not one of those people that's like talking about muzzle velocity of yeah. this gun versus that gun. One thing as a kid that I absolutely loved about this ship is that she carried three Vought OS2U Kingfisher float planes. And these would actually be used for reconnaissance and for observation of the main guns so they could adjust fire. But I always thought it was so cool that she could launch airplanes. In total, there would only be two ships in this class. It was a little disappointing. The other one is the USS Washington. And it's kind of weird as to why there's only two ships in this class, but a lot of it has to do with those treaties. Basically, they were finding ways to do it better. I'm thinking of when we talked about the Rusalka. Uh, that Russian monitor, because it was in the what was called the Charodeka class, but it was only its sister ship, the Charodeka and the Rusalka. And that was the entire class that ever existed, if I remember correctly, because yeah, they were situation. making these things better. And those things were basically garbage as soon as they hit the water. In this case, like it's still a functional vessel for what it's supposed to do. It's just that, like they've improved it. And actually, the South Dakota class is what would come next. It's designed to the same treaty standards, but they basically took what they learned in the North Carolina class and were like, we can make this more compact. We can offer better crew protection. The kind of things that happen when you're building a ship for four years and you're like, oh, we should do this differently next time. So similar vessels, but a different class nonetheless. Anyways, the North Carolina's first assignment would come in April 1942, and she is sent to Naval Station Argentina, which is in Newfoundland. Oh. I, yeah. Didn't know that was going to happen when I clicked that link. Is there a corresponding like naval station? Newfoundland. 
on the Falklands or something. What's the big city in Newfoundland? Saint no, Saint John's is Nova Scotia. Hal no, not Halifax. Halifax is Nova Scotia. Maybe it is Saint John's. Is it? Let's see. Saint John's. Or St. John. I don't know if it's called St. John or St. John's. This is the Canada Geography Hour. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's someone screaming at us right now. I don't care about the dog. This is like every time, though. This is like someone who is not from the Midwest talking about, uh, like, Ohio and Iowa and getting them mixed up. Yeah, but yeah, Des Moines just up there by Toledo. Uh, it looks like St. John's is the, the answer. Well, anyway, back to what I was saying. Is there a corollary St. John's station down in like Tierra del Fuego? Uh, I don't believe so. Um, So the reason that she's sent out this direction is she's joining other vessels patrolling for the German battle. Let me look this up before someone gets angry at me. (laughs) I don't know if the Tirpitz is a battleship or a battle cruiser, but I do know. That someone will tell me I'm wrong. Oh, she's the second. Okay, so she the Turpitz is also part of a two ship class, the Bismarck class. I did not know that the Turpitz was the same design as the Bismarck. I've learned something today. So they're sent there to patrol for the German battleship Turpitz. The idea being that if the Turpitz attempts to break out and raid Allied convoys, that's going to be bad. However. As German fleets tend to do in World Wars, Tirpitz would remain in port, and North Carolina was soon sent to the Pacific. There, she would join Task Force 18, and based around the carrier USS Wasp. At this point, that task force is under the command of Rear Admiral Lee Noyes. Come on, feel Lee Noyes. <laughs> so she would quickly be sent to Task Force 16, and based around the carrier Enterprise. What you're going to notice here is that every time she's attached to a task force, that task force is based around a carrier. Her job is to protect carriers. That is the thing she's there to do is to provide air cover, to provide submarine cover, and just to make sure that the carrier is able to do its job. You know, she's going to be one of the most powerful offensive weapons there. Short of like the Iowa class or the South Dakota class, you know, she's a pretty, still a pretty advanced piece of equipment. So part of this task for the overall task force is to cover the 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal, and they actually play a major role in helping them capture the uh, pretty infamous airfield on Guadalcanal. They're providing a lot of fire support and things like that that help the Marines get that done. So they're they're part of that operation. Is that Henderson Field? Is that what it's uh, called? I think Henderson Field's in Pearl Harbor. Oh. I think. Pretty sure. I should know. I was just there. But yeah, like that's a pretty, I think uh, even in uh, the Pacific, like that's one of the things that you see is Guadalcanal in the airfield. I think Call of Duty, World at War actually plays through that too. So it's a, it's a pretty famous point in World War II. Yes, it was called Henderson Field. And I think it is from one of the Call of Duty games <laughs> that I remember that. Later, she'll be part of the battle for the Eastern Solomons on August 24th and 25th, 1942. And during this time, North Carolina's anti-aircraft guns claimed to have shot down up to 14 Japanese planes. Um, after this battle, the North Carolina would be transferred to Task Force 17, and that's based around the carrier Saratoga. It's while acting in this role that the North Carolina was torpedoed by the Japanese submarine I-19 
on September 15, 1942. Uh, so the torpedo would hit North Carolina about 20 feet below the waterline on her port side. She's left with a 32-foot by 18-foot hole in her hull. And fortunately for the, the ship, the damage is fairly limited. The forward turret is disabled by the blast, and the vessel would develop a five-and-a-half-degree list. But this is balanced out with counter, counter flooding, and the damage is controlled pretty quickly. Unfortunately, five men were killed in the attack. So, you know, overall, not a major event, but, you know, it's still pretty. I mean, if your ship gets torpedoed, it's a pretty bad day, right? Like, no matter what happened. A 32 by 18 foot hole seems like a big problem, but I guess I mean, not. I With, think it like, is. Compartmentalization and stuff like that. Well, you have compartmentalization. And as long as you're able to respond, like with damage control and stuff, like you, it, it's bad, but you can get it under control pretty quick. It seems like it was a pretty low-intensity engagement when this happened. It was more of like, it caught a stray torpedo, basically. So they're like not necessarily under active attack. and They're able to respond to the damage. Um, and actually, the North Carolina is able to stay on station and provide cover for Saratoga in the immediate aftermath of all this. So, you know, she is still able to do her job at once she's, you know, got everything figured out. However, two other vessels, the USS Wasp and the USS O'Brien, are actually sunk during these attacks. So North Carolina fares better than a lot of the other vessels in the area. The Wasp is the carrier, right? Correct. Which is like pretty crazy to think that. Can you imagine if we had an aircraft carrier sunk today? I cannot. What does that even look like? I guess I couldn't have told you that we actually like did lose any carriers in World War II. I think we lost more than you think. The other thing you, you have to be kind of, I guess, aware of is like some of them are like escort carriers. Yeah, and I know, I know there's different sizes like of them also. I was just looking it up because there are two USS Wasps that exist. But yeah, um, it looks like this USS Wasp is actually a reduced sized version of the Yorktown class. So she's a pretty big carrier. So following these events, North Carolina would be sent to Pearl Harbor for repair. Um, she'd go on to participate in numerous other campaigns, including the Gilbert and Marshall Islands, the Mariana and Palau Islands, and various other operations later in the war, including operations in and around the Japanese home islands. So she has a pretty extensive you know, service history and everything. Um, at one point, she actually rescues downed airmen from Tokyo Bay. I didn't research that story, but like, I kind of need to know what happened How? there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I needed to like fact check that one. I saw that one written. I was like, I I need to know. I mean, I guess technically, like once occupation type stuff started, a downed airman could just be like a mechanical issue. So she would transit the Panama Canal on October seventeenth, nineteen forty five. And she would undergo an overhaul at the Brooklyn Naval Yard. So back to where it all began. Ultimately, only two years later, she'd be decommissioned in June of 1947. Like you can tell that we were still in the, um, we might have to fight the Soviets phase of things mm -hmm. when like we're bringing it back from Japan to be like overhaul it. And then two years later, we're like, mm, maybe we won't launch nukes at each other. There's, and there's definitely not going to be another conflict in a few years. Yeah, like we won't need this for Korea. It's fine. So she would be on the naval rolls until June 1st, 1960, when she was scheduled to be broken up. Ultimately, though, she would be saved by the efforts of a few local North Carolina businessmen 
and uh, the efforts of WRAL, a local news station in Raleigh, <laughs> North Carolina. Right. Which is really funny because that's the news I remember watching at like our grandparents' house. She would be preserved in Wilmington, North Carolina as a museum ship. It's in this role that she would really gain her haunted reputation. One interesting rabbit hole I went down is there was like a big debate about where to put this thing in 1960 in North Carolina. It almost went to Moorhead. That would make sense. Which would have been really cool, actually, considering that's where we spent most of our time growing up and, and visiting the beach and everything. I know we were lucky enough that we went to the North Carolina. I was young. Do you even remember it? Uh, no. Yeah, you, you had to be little. I was probably in like second or third grade, but I do have some vague memories of being here. But I would absolutely love to go visit it again. I actually, I, I guess I couldn't have said for sure that I've ever been to Wilmington. So let's talk about some ghost stories here. All right. Obviously, um, you know, five men died in the torpedo blast. But what do we know about any time you cram a bunch of people on a vessel and go to war? Like incidents happen, sickness happens, fights happen, trauma happens, right? Like it's not just necessarily people that would have been killed in the torpedo blast that may be around. Mm hmm. You know, life has happened on this vessel, a pretty hard life for a lot of these people. Within the ghost enthusiast community, there's wide ranging debates about what leads to a haunting and what, what can imprint energy on a location. It doesn't necessarily have to be that a person died there. I guess before we get too far to the ghost stories, I would describe myself as like ghost agnostic, I suppose. Like, I definitely don't believe in ghosts. I find them interesting and like, I guess I can hold a little bit of room of being like, I suppose it could be real, but like, I am not a believer in ghosts personally. I would say for me, I, I love ghost stories. I'm, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in ghost stories and the power and the cultural representations that they have. Yeah. What scares us and what do we, I, I think a lot of like ghost stories are about what do we think is worthy of preservation? Like what mm -hmm. kind of stories would stick around? if this was something that was possible. Um, so yeah, I think the kind of ghost stories that like a culture tells are like, is really interesting to say what, not just from like the horror aspect of it, but just from the, the folklore and the culture aspect of it. Not Zach Baggins asking if there's any ladies in here. I mean, those are entertaining for sure. If a bit repetitive. Ghost Adventures is on Netflix and that's about to be my new, like doing the laundry show. So I am going to expose my tattoos right now in hopes that I get scratched or choked. I don't really put much weight on the term supernatural because if something were shown to exist, it would inherently be part of the natural world. Right. Yeah, ghosts. Let's do it. But but like you said, like I do absolutely love ghost stories. I think they're amazing. And you know what? There's some weird shit out there, but it's probably explainable. We just don't know how. So during multiple investigations that I found from a group called Port City Paranormal. They went at least four times, maybe more, and they gathered some really interesting evidence. Obviously, a lot of the things one would expect. In their first visit, there's footsteps that are shuffling through the mess area. There's loud bangs and faint voices, you know, almost like what you'd hear if there was meal prep going on, you know, that kind of thing. Two of the team members reported being touched, while everyone on board that was part of the team was able to find cold spots on the ship. It's made of metal, isn't it? Yeah, like cold spots don't do it for me, <laughs> but like I get it. I get it. Like I know it's a, it's a thing. 
In the aft sections, the team seemed to encounter the playful spirit, which would lead them around as if it wanted to be chased, and at one point, they even heard it offer a faint, teasing swear. Who brought their kid to Guadalcanal? (laughs) Uh, In the engine room, there seemed to be a singular lonely entity. It took a special interest in the female investigators, especially the blonde ones. And they were actually able to get an EVP in that room of it saying, don't go, when they attempted to leave. Also, for non-ghost enthusiasts, an EVP is an electronic voice phenomenon. I will say, I'm going to link to this group's page specifically about the battleship. They have some EVPs on there. Here's the deal. EVPs are never proof, I don't think, of like a haunting, but they are interesting to listen to. They're they're interesting in the same way that like a horror movie can be interesting. It's like something can sound creepy. Yeah. Sure. Like it doesn't matter like where it came from. If it sounds creepy, that that can be entertaining. I guess like the biggest thing with my attitude towards a lot of this stuff is like I don't necessarily believe, but I'm not here to mock it either. You know what I mean? This is also a, a good stance to have about professional wrestling. I mean, I do enjoy some WWE. <laughs> I don't believe in it, but I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mock the entertainment value. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much how I feel. <laughs> this and Seth Rollins are basically the same thing. <laughs> Another noted hotspot is obviously the sick bay, because why wouldn't it be haunted? Footsteps, shouts, muffled distant voices could be heard. Of course, no sick bay is complete without some moaning thrown in. Mm-hmm. I would honestly be disappointed if we didn't catch anything going to the sick bay. Uh, the team would end up returning for many subsequent visits and would have many more strange encounters. One of the interesting ones is at one point they could hear like the sound of footsteps sloshing through water. And it sounded like it was coming from like a compartment below them that they couldn't re- actually access. But they were able to lower a microphone down into there. And they actually caught a soft voice whispering, hello, we're down here. So that that's interesting. I mean, those are always interesting things, right? You know, definitely anytime I think you can get that EVP kind of matching what the situation is like that. That's interesting. I hate the EVPs that are just like ball. And then they have to like find a way to be like, it said ball. How do we like make it connect? Like (laughs) here it's like, okay, so like if this is real. And these guys are, like, stuck drowning in the lower compartment. Like, yeah, that makes sense. On that same night, two members were confronted by a spirit in the engineer's office. So, the interesting thing here is that both of the men saw the first part of this, but only one of them saw the second part. Hmm. So, as they're walking, something zooms towards them, sort of a black mass, and causing the two men to, like, you know react and run into each other Mm -hmm. almost knocking each other over as they refocused one of them would see a face only a couple inches away and this face has pale skin with large blue eyes the hair is wavy and yellow almost like it's being held up by like a breeze or something Mm -hmm. and then just as he's able to process this image the spirit smiles and then slowly like not fades away into black, but almost just moves away until it's just a little pinprick of light far away mm. down the hall. That's cool. That story is the one that like convinced me. I, like, I need to like share this one because like that's quite the encounter. Like that that's intense. It's a pretty hefty claim. <laughs> I feel like you don't usually see you know paranormal encounters with that 
you know, multiple steps like that, kind of the initial mm-hmm. and then the kind of the follow up. It's usually like a momentary thing and probably easier to brush off as nothing. Whereas if you if you saw this, yeah, I, I can imagine that being a jarring experience. Yeah, and like we've all had moments where we're kind of like you see something like, did I just really see that? You know, like what was that? But I guess one thing that kind of reading about this group, one thing I liked, I, I read a little bit about like their methodology and kind of beliefs in this. And like, they're really big about being like a non-provoke investigation team, which like that always to me puts like a check in the positive column because then it feels like they're at least like earnestly trying to investigate this yeah. rather than like make ghost hunter or, or ghost adventures 2.0. So like I did find some, some, you know, reassurance in that. Yeah. Uh, Subsequent visits would yield even more interesting results. Perhaps one of the most interesting is a door in the ship's brig moving on video with no one around it. I actually did watch that video. Um, It it is interesting. I mean, it's shot in night vision, of course. It looks creepy. You know what I mean? Like, it definitely looks like like a creepy thing paranormal caught on camera level quality i would give it better than that actually okay. well that's, it's that's solid <laughs> scary it's like scary youtube video okay. quality for sure like yeah it, it was solid i'm gonna link to their stuff um there's there's a lot more on there overall it appears that the team did gather a ton of interesting experiences on the vessel i would love to go back there i would love to do a ghost hunt on the north i truly would love to do a ghost hunt somewhere like this like as sort of the the resident skeptic, we could we'll see if they'll let us do one on the cobia at the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. I mean, that thing would be terrifying. Although normally, I think there was only one recorded death in combat on the cobia, which is weird for a submarine because normally it's like a lot more or no one. Yeah, I was gonna say it's sort of an all or nothing proposition. I believe the deck gunner was hit in combat. And that was the only combat death on the Cobia, um, if I remember correctly. So that would have happened outside the ship. Yes. So maybe he just haunts the deck if he's there. (laughs) So yeah, that's the story of the North Carolina. little background. Um, There's some interesting stuff going on there. If you are in the Wilmington, North Carolina area, go visit it. It's a good time. What do you have for us? All right. I have a couple of things, actually. All right. Um, I'm going to, I think, just roll with the quantity as my quality all its own to paraphrase napoleon <laughs> so i'm actually going to start with uh actually it's a story that uh was sent to us by ben who's a listener and sent this to us uh about i guess two months ago at this point uh, starting with this one it's not necessarily a ghost story uh more of just a weird halloween coincidence if you don't read this like the ghost story, guys, I'll be very disappointed. My voice doesn't go that deep. I can't. <laughs> I can't hit the Brendan notes. He is probably my favorite person to tell ghost stories. It's called Death on Halloween. During the American Revolution, 1775 to 1783, the British controlled the Great Lakes and maintained headquarters for the region at Fort Niagara. Fort's commandant exercised military command over the vast northwestern frontier and was responsible for maintaining alliances with native peoples moving supplies to western posts, and protecting the fort from attack. After 1777, the commandant also dispatched raiding parties that struck the New York and Pennsylvania frontiers. Two remarkable men who served in this weighty position, Lieutenant Colonels John Caldwell and Mason Bolton, died on the same day, October 31st, four years apart. 
Dun, dun, dun. Mason Bolton could be like a quarterback at like Mississippi State or something. Absolutely. That is an SEC quarterback name. Just prior to the outbreak of the revolution, the 8th Regiment of Foot was ordered to garrison Fort Niagara and a number of smaller outposts throughout the Great Lakes. The regiment's field commander, Lieutenant Colonel John Caldwell, arrived at Fort Niagara in August 1774. Caldwell had served in the British Army since the 1740s and was about 50 years old when he assumed command of the isolated outpost at the mouth of the Niagara River. Ten months later, word reached Fort Niagara that British troops and Massachusetts militia had clashed at the battles of Lexington and Concord. Caldwell now assumed the onerous task of preparing Fort Niagara for war. Strengthening the fort was made more difficult when American forces invaded Canada late in 1775. I know this doesn't go well. Uh, <laughs> now, Fort Niagara was cut off from supplies and communications with England. The fort's garrison spent a miserable winter in a starving condition. By summer 1776, British forces had regained control of the St. Lawrence Valley, and the flow of supplies to Fort Niagara resumed. Caldwell now turned his attention to securing support from the powerful Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. In September, he assisted with a grand council where part of the Six Nations declared their allegiance to the British, a major diplomatic success. Unfortunately, a combination of harsh winter weather, poor diet, and overwork began to take its toll on Colonel Caldwell's already delicate constitution. Early in October, he reported that his ill state of health kept him from fulfilling his duties. On October 31st, he succumbed to a lengthy, unidentified illness. I think we have an idea between the winter and the bad diet. Yeah, yeah. I, th I, th I think I can diagnose that one. But to be fair, we're probably more qualified than like any doctor that would have existed at that point. It's very true. When word of Caldwell's passing reached Colonel Guy Carleton, governor of Quebec, he immediately appointed a successor. Lieutenant Colonel Mason Bolton of the 9th Regiment of Foot. Until Bolton was able to reach Niagara in July 1777, Captain Richard LaMold would hold temporary command of the fort. Like Caldwell, Bolton had begun his career in the British Army during the 1740s. He now oversaw Fort Niagara's rapidly expanding role in the events of the Revolution. A British plan to invade New York during 1777 via the Lake Champlain-Hudson River Corridor involved a supporting attack down the Mohawk River from the west. This expedition, under the command of Brigadier General Barry St. Ledger, drew troops and native allies from Fort Niagara, but stalled at present-day Rome, New York, when Crown forces were unable to capture the American-held Fort Stanwix. After the failure of the 1777 campaign, British officials at Fort Niagara turned their attention to outfitting raiding parties to attack the frontiers of New York and Pennsylvania. The most famous of these units, Butler's Rangers, was raised among Loyalist refugees who'd been fleeing to Fort Niagara since 1776. Growing numbers of Native Americans also arrived at Fort Niagara, some to seek succor from British forces and others to obtain supplies for launching raids on the frontier. By 1779, a series of devastating Loyalist and Native attacks on frontier settlements led General George Washington to order a 4,000-man expedition to chastise the Six Nations. Led by General John Sullivan, American troops came within 85 miles of Fort Niagara, but lacked the supplies and artillery needed to attack the fort. Bolton, meanwhile, strengthened the fort and dispatched troops to help defend the territory of the Six Nations. With their villages and crops largely destroyed, thousands of native refugees converged on Fort Niagara during the winter of 1779 to 80, where many starved to death. By fall of 1780, 
Lieutenant Colonel Bolton's health began to fail, and he asked to be relieved of his command. In early October, he received permission to return to England. On October 31st, Bolton boarded the Snow HMS Ontario for well-deserved leave. Later that evening, the vessel was engulfed in a sudden lake storm and sank with no survivors. Several efforts were made to locate the wreck of the Ontario over the years, but it wasn't until 2008 that divers Jim Kennard and Dan Scoville located the sunken vessel using sophisticated side-scanning sonar and an underwater remote-operated vehicle. Today, Lieutenant Colonel Bolton's remains lie at the bottom of Lake Ontario, while those of Lieutenant Colonel Caldwell rest under the grounds of historic old Fort Niagara. Both men commanded Fort Niagara with honor and considerable skill. Oddly, both died on Halloween. Interesting. Very interesting. More of a coincidence, I guess, than creepiness, but... I always like a good coincidence. That's sort of like the material service last week. Like, how does that buoy end up uh, in Sturgeon Bay, right? You know, I, these are always fun. These, these kind of stories are always interesting to find the little, little things like that. All right, I've got another one here. I think it's slightly shorter than that one. The, the next two I have are from Ghost Ships, True Stories of Nautical Nightmares, Hauntings, and Disasters by Richard Weiner. This is chapter 22 of that book. It's called Ghosts at Sea. The two things that we like. Ghosts and sea. For many years, at the city's service oil company's corporate headquarters in New York City, there hung a photograph of two seamen who died aboard one of the company's tankers and were buried at sea. What's unusual about a picture of two deceased company employees, one might ask? Many maritime writers consider this incident to be one of the most baffling mysteries of the sea. On December 2nd, 1929, the city's service gasoline tanker Watertown was steaming south from San Pedro, California, toward the Panama Canal. While the tanker was off the coast of Mexico, tragedy struck aboard the vessel. Two deckhands working near the cargo tank area died of asphyxiation caused by gasoline fumes. Two days later, on December 4th, the ship's captain, Keith Tracy, read the sermon for burial at sea just before sunset. Minutes later, the bodies of James T. Courtney and Michael Meehan were committed to the deep in 1,400 feet of water. The SS Watertown continued her voyage south. The two deceased sailors had been very popular with their shipmates, and depression enveloped the crew. However, the next day, the feeling of grief was suddenly replaced first by disbelief, and then terror. Just 24 hours after Courtney and Meehan were buried at sea, the ship's first mate, who was standing on the Watertown's wing bridge, called the captain's attention to what appeared to be two men swimming out in the open sea. Soon, Captain Tracy and the crew were lining the rail. The vessel slowed down within 40 feet of the swimmers. It's Courtney and Meehan, screamed Monroe Atkins, the ship's chief engineer. The men aboard the Watertown recognized the swimmers as their dead shipmates. As the tanker eased alongside the two men in the water, they vanished. We were doing about ten knots, recalled Captain Tracy later, and they kept reappearing and keeping up with us. Every man aboard the Watertown agreed that the two apparitions were, without doubt, their two deceased shipmates. As the ship changed direction, so did the swimmers, keeping parallel with the vessel. 
Examination with binoculars verified that the two swimmers were definitely Courtney and Mian. The apparitions remained with the ship for several days, until the water town was just off Balboa and ready to enter the Panama Canal. After the water town entered the canal zone, the two swimmers were seen no more. The ship exited the canal and entered the Gulf of Mexico, and the passage north to New Orleans passed without incident. Captain Tracy and Chief Engineer Atkins submitted a complete report on the fatal accident and reappearance. Company officials, skeptical at first, conceded that something strange was going on after the entire crew verified the happenings. Captain Tracy was furnished with a camera and film for the return voyage to California. The Watertown steamed back south through the Gulf of Mexico to Cologne, where she again entered the Panama Canal. That segment of the passage was without incidents. However, the tanker had no sooner exited the canal and entered the Pacific Ocean when the two swimmers appeared again. It was always the same. They swam parallel to the Watertown or whatever course the tanker was headed. As soon as there was sufficient light, Captain Tracy readied the camera. It was a box camera and held an eight-exposure roll of film. Captain exposed the entire roll on the two swimming apparitions. The camera, with the film still in it, was then placed in the ship's safe. After the pictures were taken, the two swimming ghosts were never seen again. <laughs> this is a good throwback to the days before you knew what you actually had taken a picture of. Yeah, it actually really is. You kind of forget that part that like he had no clue what he was taking a picture of mm-hmm. as far as like results. Uh, when the Watertown reached port and docked, the camera, with the film, was removed from the safe in the presence of city's service officials. It was then taken to a photographic laboratory, where the film was developed. The captain and the company officials gathered around the darkroom man as he held the still-wet roll of film up to the light. Straining their eyes, they huddled in as close as the room allowed. The first exposure was blank. <laughs> The second and third frames were, due to camera movement, blurred beyond recognition. The next four pictures were blurred and showed only water. The eighth and last frame brought a feeling of relief to the captain and chief engineer. The others were astounded. The last picture showed two slightly blurred human images swimming alongside the ship. The negative was printed and the resulting picture clearly showed two faces resembling the ghostly swimmers of the Watertown's crew, James T. Courtney and Michael Meehan, swimming alongside the ship. After seeing the print, the rest of the crew all agreed that one face was definitely that of Meehan, and that the other resembled Courtney. Friends and relatives of the two dead sailors positively identified the faces as belonging to the deceased. For many years, an enlargement of the photograph of Courtney and Meehan in the water alongside the Watertown hung in City Service's New York office. Now, almost three quarters of a century later, there is still no earthly explanation for the swimming ghosts. Creepy. I'm looking at the picture now. I actually have not looked at it. It's uh, Here, I will send you the link. Oh, I've seen this picture before. Yeah, okay. I've definitely seen this picture. I did not realize that that was the story we were talking about, so I looked it up. It's, like, too perfect. Okay. That's... Come on. <laughs> the, fact <that> the, <laughs> the fact that the one is framed perfectly between two pieces of railing or something. Yeah, and also they they don't look like... 
they don't look like a a human face with like skin on it that you could like identify features of. I will say though, it looks better than most of the effects that get used in modern like Marvel movies and stuff. This looks better than anything you'll find in the uh, ghosts subreddit. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting story. You know what I mean? Like it, it checks a lot of those classic uh, ghost boxes. Um, I do like how in this picture though, there's the two faces like clearly visible in the water and then just two enormous arrows pointing, pointing to them. them. They are larger than the faces themselves. Oh, like this is what I'm supposed to be looking at. <laughs> this is wonderful. I think it's interesting that the ghosts apparently can't make it through the canal. They don't want to pay the toll. Yeah, I there's, there's jurisdictional issues there. It's a, it's a kind of a fun story. Mm -hmm. Also, when I was looking at the picture, I kind of expected them to be in more of like a swimming pose not just a head they look like they're just kind of treading water yeah they're definitely bobbing well they swam all the way to the canal and had to wait so they're probably tired yeah gotta get in that that recovery position yeah it's a it's a it's a cool photo it's interesting i think it's kind of weird that they would hang this in their office yeah that part is odd <laughs> um <laughs> look at our ghosts it definitely like it looks like higher effort than a lot of the pictures you see today yeah, no, no, no shade on their on their effort there. It it, it looks cool. I kind of wish just the arrows weren't there. Mm. We'll have to find the raw picture. I'm sure it exists. Kind of kills it. What if it doesn't? What if those crew members who are actually just like holding those big arrows like in the picture? <laughs> in the picture. Just underneath the frame. <laughs> All right, I've got one more. And it's actually a ship that we've talked about before. Okay. Thinking back to our story of the Forestall. Okay. Which we did... A while ago. What what number episode was that? Ooh. It, was it was fairly early. That is a good question. And that I want to say episode 29, but I think that's just because it's chapter 29 in my book here. Oh, let's see. Episode oh, 29. You've got to be kidding me. What? It is episode 29. Did we just have one of those weird coincidences this is, happen in this episode? This is a weird coincidence. This is like two girls, one ghost. When this happens on happens. paranormal podcasts all the time, and it happened to us. Look at that! Look at us go. This is amazing. I think that is hilarious. We absolutely did not plan that out. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. All right. Well, I'm thoroughly spooked now. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to skip over some of the early parts of the story. Um, yeah, yeah. If you guys want background on the forest, I'll listen to the episode. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a really great episode. Um, that was one where I learned a lot. And John McCain makes another appearance. Oh yeah, he'll be in this story too. Cool. Rest in peace, big man. Except not really. <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna assume that everyone has listened to the episode on the Forestall. So if you have not, pause this episode, listen to the Forestall, and come back. The Navy designed the Forestall to rectify all the weaknesses of her World War II predecessors. Although she did serve in the Vietnam era. The Forestall never experienced direct action or attack by the enemy. Her planes and air crews did participate in air combat, but her highly advanced and innovative combat design was never actually put to the test. But since the Forestall was a ship of such huge proportions, she did have her quota of fatal mishaps. Strange sounds and sightings have been reported aboard the deactivated Forestall. However, those goings on have nothing to do with the ship's dormancy. Bizarre events were reported aboard even while she was on active sea duty, with her full complement of 148 officers and 2,810 enlisted men. 
During the Big Flat Top's final years of active service, crewmen reported numerous incidents that were beyond any logical explanation. Secured hatches opened mysteriously and slammed in cadence with the rhythm from each roll of the ship. Well, that sounds like it's a someone forgot that, to lock the hatches. Yeah, that sounds like that, that sounds <laughs> like what ships do. It, when... If it's moving with the ship as it rolls, okay. <laughs> um, uh, unfamiliar voices were heard over disconnected intercom phones. Lights came on by themselves, and eerie sounds were emitted from unoccupied compartments. And of course, there was the seeing of the unseen. I have no doubt that being in the bowels of this ship is incredibly creepy. Oh, I'm sure. Like, and lots of like metal and stuff clanging. Like, yeah, sound is going to travel weird. Doesn't make it less creepy. Like knowing that objectively, it's like when Palouche is in the basement crying, and it sounds like a little child. <laughs> During a six-month tour of the Indian Ocean and Arabian Gulf near the end of her career, Lieutenant James Brooks, the carrier's public relations officer, was quoted as saying, "Whoever or whatever it is, crew members swear a ghost is responsible for flickering lights." voices on disconnected telephones, and things that go bump in the night. Incredibly, he added, some of the men claim they've even seen a ghost prowling below decks. Far below the ship's waterline are two compartments that sailors had become hesitant to enter. The spaces were originally designed as mammoth cold storage lockers for her enormous crew. Do you remember what's going in those lockers? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I do. Ironically, though, on July 29th, 1967, her flight and hangar decks were encased by fire and explosion as her Skyhawks were being fueled with JT-5 jet fuel in the Gulf of Tonkin off North Vietnam. One thing I don't like about this is that he he goes back and forth between how he writes Vietnam. Sometimes he uses it as two words and sometimes just as one. Uh, Yeah, don't like that. Need some consistency here. Although it never was officially admitted, the fire and explosions resulted from a succession of human errors. Bodies and body parts of the 137 crewmen who perished in the fiery catastrophe were stowed in the deep freezers, which had been transformed into temporary morgues. Thus, some of the crew theorized that the Forrestal's ghost is the restless spirit of a petty officer killed in that fire while sealed in one of the ship's combat-proof battle compartments. One really disturbing thing I hadn't thought about, to make room in those freezers, they probably had to take out a lot of like ice cream and like steaks and things Pudding. like that. Like. Do you think they just ate like kings for the next like two days after this? Like that had to be a weird thing. Like you got to cook it all, right? It's very good with the bad situation. Sorry your buddy got lit on fire and died, but like here's a porterhouse. Take two. (laughs) Others believe the spirit is a pilot. Sorry, I'm just stuck on the phrase combat proof battle compartments. Why don't they make the whole ship out of combat proof battle compartments? (laughs) Others believe the spirit is a pilot who perished in a previous crash, for several sightings had been reported before the 1967 tragedy. The apparitions definitely were not hallucinations, beheld by a handful of superstitious sailors. That's what I say when I see a ghost, too. This was not a hallucination. I think that sounds like protesting too much a little bit there. Definitely not that. Petty Officer Dan Balboa, who was in charge of the officer's mess, claimed that for years after the disaster, some of his men refused to go alone into those two compartments deep down in the bowels of the ship, which were again being used for frozen food. One crewman actually became... This is a word we don't really use anymore. No, no. This book's only from 2000. What? It's not a race word. I was about to say, are we going to have to censor this word? (laughs) One crewman actually became demented whenever he neared the area. Oh, that is a fun one. I feel like the last time I've heard that 
used is in the movie Good Burger, because I think the name of the mental <laughs> institution is Demented Hills. Um, <laughs> on the verge of panic, the ship's cook absolutely and adamantly refused to go anywhere near the freezer compartments. He had to be transferred off the ship. I've never seen the ghost myself, but I know that guy saw a ghost of someone he once knew, added Balboa. But I've sure heard some strange sounds from down there. One night I was taking inventory down there, and I repeatedly heard the sound of a heavy steel deck grating being lifted and slammed back down. Yet, each time I turned around, there was nothing there, and the noise stopped. Balboa went on. Once when I was down there checking the temperature of the food freezers, freezer doors I had shut and latched kept popping open. I was alone down there. Sighting or sounds of the ship's ghost became so commonplace that the vessel's crew named the spirit. Do you want to guess? What do they call it? It's a classic ghost name. What is it? It's George. George, of course. Second class cook. That's not a very nice thing to call him. (laughs) The second class cook, James Hilliard, said, I've seen George myself. I still get goosebumps when I think about it. Most eerie was when I was working in the galley one day and I looked out into the passageway. I saw him. A ghost-like figure wearing a khaki uniform like a chief or officer. He paused less than six feet from me and looked like a real person. But I could see right through him. He walked right through a closed door into a food storage room. Another petty officer, Gary Weiss, also claimed to have seen George. I saw him, clad in khaki, opening a hatch and descending down into one of the reefer compressor rooms. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're keeping that loud down there. Uh Uh-huh. I climbed down the ladder after him, and there was no one there. That hatch was the only way in or out of that machinery space. Other sailors have reported being touched, or even grasped, by the hand that wasn't there. Some heard footsteps following them, but when they stopped and turned around... No one was there. Classic. Hillard admitted that George, every time that he writes George, he puts it in quotation marks. And I like <laughs> if, if that is the name, I don't think you need that every single time. Hillard admitted that George had had sort of become accepted as a shipmate by some of the crew, and they'd become used to his antics. The majority of those who served with George aboard the USS Forrestal theorized that He was one of the 137 sailors who burned to death in the 1967 incident on the flight deck. I mean, that's a good starting point. Chances are good. Uh, Others believe that George is the ghost of the first pilot killed in a crash landing aboard the vessel. There are others with a completely different belief, one that defies the imagination. A small group of sailors believe that the Phantom of the Forestall is the specter of none other than the carrier's namesake, James V. Forrestal, mm-hmm. who once served as a Navy pilot during the early biplane days of naval aviation. Interesting. Eventually, through the right contacts, he was appointed as Secretary of the Navy in 1944 and served at that post until 1947, when he became the United States' first Secretary of Defense. Eventually, James Forrestal met his end under exceptionally baffling circumstances during a stay in a naval hospital where he was supposedly recovering from a nervous breakdown. He either fell, jumped, or was, as some of the carrier's crew believe, thrown from the window of his sixth-floor room. 
Did he make any enemies during his years in politics? Or could it be that he knew more than he should have known of certain skeletons in certain closets? <laughs> I don't know. Do you think the U.S. Secretary of Defense has any enemies? I mean, I a few. Do you think he knows any secrets? He probably has a few. Also, I want to point out that it doesn't say skeleton in the book. It says skeleton. Skeleton. Like red like skeleton. Red skeleton. <laughs> Got any of him in the closet? Got a red skeleton in the closet. In November of 1999. Oh, it's switching to first person here, so it's kind of jarring. <laughs> uh, in November of 1999, I attended a dinner meeting of the Fort Lauderdale Navy League. The main speaker was Rear Admiral Mark Fitzgerald, Deputy Commander of U.S. Naval Forces, Central Command. During his speech, the Admiral told of the different ships that he had served aboard during his career. When he mentioned the USS Forrestal, I knew that I had to talk to him. After the meeting, I corralled him as he was heading for his car. Please don't accost people as they walk to their car. Please don't corral Rear Admirals. When I asked him if he had ever heard of the ghosts aboard the Forrestal, his face lit up. Certainly, he replied. I never saw any of them myself, but they were always one of the main topics in the wardroom. A lot of people saying they've never actually seen them themselves. It's like, oh, I heard about it from a guy. I asked if there was any consensus among those who'd served on the carrier as to whose spirits they might be. He mentioned several possibilities, including the victims of the 1966. Isn't it 67? The writer says 1967 flight deck earlier in the story so i think he just uh yeah july 29th 1967 okay so correcting richard weiner here uh the 1967 flight deck mishap then as he walked off he turned and said my guess would be the ship's namesake the former secretary of the navy hmm spooky that doesn't make any sense at all it doesn't make any was sense. was he ever just... he was never on the ship that i know of like, what? what if they had changed the name of the ship yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I know, I know the different ghost people are going to say, well, the spirit doesn't have to be bound to where it died. It can be something else connected to it. It doesn't make any sense. I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> here's the best part. <laughs> Note that we're recording this on uh, October 29th of the year 2023. <laughs> <laughs> There is one man alive today who, more than anyone else, may know who George, the Phantom of the Flat Top, really is. That man was sitting in his plane on the Forrestal's flight deck, waiting to take off on July 29th, 1967. As he braced himself for launch, he felt the shock of an enormous blast from behind. A bomb had detached from another aircraft on deck, setting off an explosion. Isn't that not accurate? Isn't it the rocket that... I believe it was a Zuni rocket, and the bombs would eventually cook off. I, I don't remember the order. I have to go back and listen. I also don't think he was, like, up on the catapult, like, getting ready to get launched. Like, he was still, like, canopy open, like... Because he was able to, like, climb across other planes that he was parked next to, I think. Yeah, I, I like, literally, though, he was in a bad spot. Like, the guy next to him died in his plane, I'm pretty sure. Maybe that's the guy whose ghost it was. Yeah, it could have been him. Maybe it was George. I have to go back and look and see what his name was. It should have been you, McCain. <laughs> that, was his last, you. that was his last words from the cockpit. <laughs> McCain, like, escaping his plane, he, like, steps on the canopy of this guy's plane so he can't get out. <laughs> F*** you, John McCain. <laughs> they should have kept you in the box. <laughs> 
I don't know if he had been shot down yet. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think he'd been shot down yet at that you'll, point. You'll you'll know what that means in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun ghost story! Oh no, it's not done yet. Uh, there's still more here. Uh, technically, reading this book, we don't know That's who true. we're talking about yet. A piece of flaming shrapnel ripped through the gas tank of his Skyhawk. Momentarily stunned by the impact, he still managed to slip out of his safety harness. Then, blindly clawing and grappling his way out of the smoke-filled cockpit, the young pilot leaped to the blazing flight deck beneath the flame-engulfed Skyhawk. About to flee the hell raging across the flight deck, he hesitated. Then, with no concern for his own safety, he turned and, charging into the Holocaust, lowercase, mm. lowercase mm-hmm. h, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. began pulling stunned and wounded sailors from the Inferno. 135 of his shipmates perished in the mishap. Mishap? I don't mishap? care if it's an uppercase or lowercase h. I don't that I don't think I'd apply that word. Here. Well, also it's interesting because like that word wasn't like the accepted way to refer to that until like I want to say like the 70s. Like it wasn't like like now we think of that word and like, it's like a proper noun. Yeah. And like it was used it it was a word before that and, and it was used even in like the 50s and 60s to refer to other things and even now you use it but you mm-hmm. see it like nuclear holocaust mm-hmm. um but I, again i feel like 2000 seems really late to be using it as just like a common noun right anyway yeah mishap i think is a weird way to describe like 130 people burning yeah. to death yeah it really um, is oh anyway the young pilot survived his name john mccain future U.S. Senator from Arizona and contender for the Republican Party presidential nomination in the year 2000. And father of Megan McCain. Most importantly, as of this writing, the USS Forrestal had been recently donated to Tampa, Florida as a national monument. When the big carrier enters the port of Tampa after its long tow down the eastern seaboard from Newport, Rhode Island, it will be greeted by thousands of small boats and yachts, fireboats and tugs, with their water cannons streaking the sky. Coast Guard cutters and every other imaginable kind of nautical conveyance. But before the USS Forrestal can open for sightseeing tours, an important question must be taken under consideration. Where is George? I don't think that's that important. You wouldn't hold off opening this for tours until you find out where George is, right? I've got bad news for George. Is it? Did it get scrapped? Uh, George, it was scrapped by All Star Metal in Brownsville, Texas. You all-star metal Brownsville, Texas. Oh, I, I really hope that George now haunts the scrapyard. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, that's the story of the uh, the Phantom of the Forestall. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I was glad that we could do one on, on a ship that we've talked about already. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. It's always fun to revisit those. So yeah, that is our Halloween episode. Yeah, it was a fun one. Um, as you can tell, we are not really necessary. I wouldn't call us believers in the paranormal, but we are both interested in it, and we find it very uh, fascinating to dig into. Critical support to yes paranormal entities. Uh, so with all of that, I hope everybody has a great Halloween, have a lot of fun, be safe, all the normal things. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with a probably a, a more normal episode next week. But until then, uh, have a good week, everybody. 